0: A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, He himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to
1: God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I listened to an interview with Kristen Bell this week. Right? Anybody? OK She's got this very in- am I the only one who knows anything about pop culture? <laughs> that can't be true. She's got this infectious cuteness about her. Life just like feels cute when she starts talking. In this interview, she references several times this sort of life philosophy that she has made up for herself. She says that when faced with any sort of decision, she asks herself, will this result in my happiness or suffering? Now by all accounts, Ms. Bell seems like a thoughtful, caring, hardworking person who wants to legitimately see good in the world, and I do not wish to set her up as some sort of straw man to demolish. I think it's more that I'm struck by how much I really want this that she says to be true, to be my way of living. It seems so intuitively right. Happy, suffering. We're all going to go this way, right? After all, who would willingly choose to suffer? A few years ago, when All Souls was forming as a parish, we did a series of discipleship talks that were to try to help us identify the cultural liturgies that have enmeshed in our lives, the ideas that everybody in the world has stories and rituals that orient their lives, that point them in a certain direction, that push them toward specific destinations. And the various disciplines within the humanities have different language for this sort of thing. The search for meaning, the good life, teleology, worship, The trouble is that it's quite difficult to assess how much we have been hooked by these various liturgies on offer in our world, at least until they start to clash with another one. I mean, I had just spent the day before I heard this interview with Kristen Bell studying this passage in Hebrews, and yet hearing this idea that I should be making decisions based on avoiding suffering seems so true. And yet here, etched in Holy Scripture, is the bald statement that the Son of God, the Son, need I remind you, who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made, this Son was made perfect through suffering. To say that the son was made perfect through suffering is not to say that he was morally imperfect. It's rather an indication of his incarnation in which he took on human flesh that was subject to decay and death. And yet in this humiliation, he was crowned with honor and glory. And even more than that, the word that's used here is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when talking about the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the Levitical priesthood The author of this text is telling us the cross was Christ's ordination service. In a sense, the cross is when Christ becomes both priest and victim. But it's almost as if the writer of Hebrews knew that we'd find this idea of suffering a difficult pill to swallow. I mean, even just hearing it read out loud again this evening, isn't it strange? What could it mean That God the Father would make the Son perfect through suffering. And we have to be careful here because suffering is not our guiding teleology. The goal of our life is not suffering, it's not our destination. As the author of Hebrews so eloquently says, we now see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. That is where we're headed. That is what the whole world is longing for, to see that picture of Christ, whether they realize it or not. That is the thing that the world exists to see. The paradox is that we get there through death. As the words of the great Orthodox Easter hymn say, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. And what I want us to see this evening is that our imaginations need to be formed by this story primarily. That Jesus Christ is the crucified king over all the worlds. Every word in that sentence is important for framing and shaping our imaginations. Jesus Christ is the crucified king over all the worlds. But as we're considering that, I I don't want us to let this curious little phrase slip by us. That Christ, the one who was made perfect in suffering, is the pioneer of our salvation. This means exactly what it sounds like. Pioneers are trailblazers. They go where no one else has gone before, but they don't necessarily do it so that they can exist in solitude. They do it so that others can follow them. Christ walked the pathway of suffering and rejection and submission and death as a pioneer. When I was in Israel earlier this summer, it was pointed out to us that the place of Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane was the same place that King David, thousands of years earlier, had fled in agony from his enemies. And it's really interesting when you're there to see how close-knit all the geography is, because David simply goes up over the hill, and he's gone. He disappears into the wilderness, and he's never able to be touched by his enemies. And yet Christ, in this exact same scenario, knows that his enemies are seeking his life. He knows that they will find him in this garden if he stays, and yet here... On his knees, he says, not your will, but mine be done, and the soldiers capture him. And in submitting to this suffering, he is perfected and ordained as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He pioneers the pathway and guides us in this way toward the salvation of our souls and bodies. Meaning we, too, must walk the path. We must follow his leadership. We must take up our cross and follow him. Of course, his role as the priestly pioneer is utterly unique. There is no one else that is able to die for the redemption of the world. And yet we are still called to come and die in order that we might find life. And this is just so, so, so counterintuitive. It goes against almost every cell in our bodies because modern life is just locked in fear of death. Now, this isn't unique to us, right? People for a long time have been afraid of death, but it's magnified in our world because we have mostly been able to get death out of our lives almost entirely. We try to quarantine off the old and the severely disabled and anyone or anything else that would remind us that death waits for all of us. Nobody's getting out alive. And because we work so hard to deny the reality of death in our daily lives, we have trouble picking up on where our anxieties come from. When people do little things like be dismissive toward us or when we're criticized, when our bank account gets low and we get hurt or sick or tired, all of these things are like death in miniature. We may not recognize our fears and anxieties as having anything to do with death, but largely that's where they're all rooted. There's a paradoxical problem here because we can't bring ourselves to name death, and yet we implicitly recognize that we have limited time and resources. And when our fear of death goes unspoken and unchecked, our natural response is to guard our time and our money all of our resources, and we start to do this, right? It's the prison cafeteria stance again. Elbows out, holding on to what's ours. But when Christ frees us from the tyranny of death and his defeat of the devil, we no longer have to live that way. We can be free to be generous, to take time with people who can't benefit us in any obvious or immediate way, to give our money to things that won't necessarily benefit us in obvious or immediate ways. We do this in faith, recognizing that the pathway of self-denial leads to glorification as has already been marked by Christ, our crucified King, because we see him now crowned with glory and honor. But here's what's really interesting about this text in hebrews is that it's not just that christ has already illuminated the pathway by his own suffering and his own submission he does it as one of us as we move toward the season of his incarnation we must remember that he took on flesh and dwelt among us so that he could suffer and die for our salvation If you look at the feast days of the church surrounding Christmas, you you get a a real sense of this, right? It's easy to forget in in our modern idea of of tinsel and presents Christmas, but you've got December 25th, the incarnation of Christ, December 26th, the feast of St. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, December 28th, the feast of the Holy Innocents, where we remember all of those innocent little babies that were murdered by Herod. Christ's entrance into the world is a sign of judgment because he is coming here, not as a cute, squishy little baby, but as someone who is going to come and die, taking on the sin of the whole world because the world has been lost in darkness. And God's love for his creation was so deep. What else was he going to do? I've quoted St. Athanasius before, but it's just so good that I'm going to do it again. Athanasius says this, What was God to do in the face of this dehumanizing of mankind, this universal hiding of the knowledge of himself by the wiles of evil spirits? Was he to keep silence before so great a wrong and let men go on being deceived and kept in ignorance of himself? What then was God to do? Being God, what else could he possibly do but renew his image in mankind so that through it men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done except by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior Jesus Christ? Humans couldn't have done it, for they are only made after the image, nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own Person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man after the image. Christ became one of us so that he could recreate us after the image. The world was languishing in bondage to death and the devil. And God being God was not going to let us go. Why? Why? Because God created us for himself. Not to remain in imprisonment to death. Not to remain in imprisonment to the devil. God plays for keeps. And it's his world. So Christ becomes like us in order to present us to his Father. But then it doesn't even stop there. His identification with us is so much stronger. It is, as Paul indicates, as if the church is truly his body. In verse 12 of our text, the writer quotes from Psalm 22, that famous psalm that Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm is, as one could guess, quite dark. The suffering is palpable, but it does not remain in that key. It shifts to a song of praise, and the way that the writer of Hebrews puts this part of the psalm in the mouth of Christ reveals a rather stunning feature of the gathered Eucharistic church. And that is that it is Christ who speaks. He says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Last week, I quoted St. John Chrysostom telling us that as we gather around the altar, we are surrounded by innumerable angels who worship Christ the King along with us. Now hear the words of St. Augustine. He says, when we speak to God in prayer, we do not separate the Son from God. And when the body of the Son prays, it does not separate itself from the head. The one sole Savior of his body is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who prays for us, prays in us, and is prayed to by us. He prays for us as our priest He prays in us as our head, and he is prayed to by us as our God. Accordingly, come on, accordingly, we must recognize our voices in him and his accents in ourselves. (laughs) When the church gathers to pray, it is Christ himself praying as the head of his body, He is the one offering true and pure worship to his Father, and baptism is our initiation into this reality. But it's more than just an initiation. It doesn't end there. It is an ongoing journey. I listened to this lecture about someone who had been a pilgrim on the Camino Santiago, which is one of the most frequented pilgrimage routes in the world. And this professor said that as she was walking one day through the forest on this long pilgrimage, she came in the middle of these woods to a tree that had graffiti on it, and in French was scrawled in this tree, qu'est-ce que vous allez faire avec votre baptême? What are you going to do with your baptism? What are you going to do with your baptism? You have been initiated into the very life of God. Whether you understood it at the time or not, when you were baptized, you were buried in Christ's death and then raised to newness of life in him. You were made alive in him. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what are you going to do with your baptism? There's a saying that if you want to build a ship, you should not drum up people to collect wood. You should not assign them tasks and work. Rather, you should teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Everything that we do as a parish, everything that I do in my work as a priest when I'm doing it well, is just this. It's trying to grow in us this longing. It's coming to the shore of Christ, our ocean, and feeling the strangeness of seeing rain miles away and not hearing it feeling the warmth of the sun as it dips into the water, feeling the pull of wanting to know where the edge of the ocean spills over into another world. It's coming to the foothills of Christ, our mountain, and seeing the brightness of the sun and the impenetrable clouds, the revelation and the mystery, and being drawn upward into him. It is to no longer be content to stay at the shoreline or in the foothills, but to start the difficult, lifelong journey of dying in Christ. What I want for myself, for my marriage, for my children, for each of you, is to put aside Christ the plaything and to set our feet on the path of Christ our mountain, to set sail out into Christ our ocean. To say with Flannery O'Connor, dear Lord, please make me want you, it would be the greatest bliss. Not just to want you when I think about you, but to want you all the time, to think about you all the time, to have the want driving in me, to have it like a cancer in me. It would kill me like a cancer, and that would be the fulfillment. To embark on this kind of journey requires real food, real sustenance. It's not a school, it's an initiation. School has students who learn a lesson, but initiation has disciples who discover a life. In other words, being a Christian convert is, as William Harmless says, it demands more than some sudden born-again experience or shift in institutional allegiance. He's not saying that's not part of it. But it demands more. It requires transformation of the whole person. It envisions human life as a journey of ongoing conversion that begins long before the person approaches the local church and continues long after the person enters its ranks. Thomas is quick to point out, though, this process is more circular than linear. If you feel like you've been paddling around in the ocean in circles, welcome. Living this kind of life in Christ, where we have really had our imaginations snagged by him, so that we start to long to see him crowned with glory and honor, so that we will not forsake him when we see his shame and humiliation on the cross. It takes time. It takes practice. It requires our whole body to be involved. And in some ways, I think it's like throwing what I call gospel rocks into the water of our life. these rocks of the gospel message that Christ has come and yet the very thing that we deserve, he takes on himself and creates us anew in him. As these drop down into the center of our life, we need to let that water ripple out into every aspect of our being and then be drawn back into prayer and scripture and a deepened commitment to Christ that then ripples out again. It's doing the same things over and over and over again and encountering Christ in those things. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.